welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 11. My conversation with new vaudeville legend, Abner Eisenberg, better known as Abner the Eccentric. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. My engineer is my lovely wife, Karen Holzman. And I'm sponsored, as always, by the IJA, the International Jugglers Association. Information on this fine group can be found at juggle.org. Now sit back, drop everything, Listen to the story of Abner the Eccentric. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. How are you doing out there in Maine? My pleasure. We're shivering here. It's winter, it's Maine, it's cold, and awfully beautiful. Well, I want to visit you at your eccentric workshop this summer at the Celebration Barn. Before we get into that, let's start at the beginning. Let's start with a little bit of background. Where were you raised okay. and uh, what was your childhood like? Well, it was a pretty generic childhood in Atlanta, Georgia. Through, really through half of college, I was a basic science nerd, was interested in herpetology, and went away to college as a, an honors biology and chemistry major. Got disenchanted with that, and it was the middle of the 60s, and it rained one day, and I went into a building to get out of the rain and got a part to play. Well, what did your parents do? Were they from a, a show business background at all or not? Oh, not at all. My dad was a lawyer. He performed in the local synagogue musical every year. That was about as close as we got. I don't think I ever saw a play until I got to college. I don't remember. Well, I remember one, one play and one musical that I saw in high school. It was, it was not part of my upbringing. And when did you become first aware of, of juggling and clowning? Was that in college? No, when I was about 12 years old, my parents and their best friends used to play uh, bridge every Friday night, and they took the money that they, that they lost to each other, and we took family vacations for several years. And if you know Bounce and Ooh La La? Sure, sure. Was well, it uh, locomotive, were they, were they called locomotive vaudeville? Oh, no, that was Bounce, was part of Locomotion Vaudeville. Mm. His wife, Karen, was one of the, the, the daughter of the other family. Oh. And we all, we went to Callaway Gardens in central Georgia, and the Florida State University Circus ran a day camp program for kids who were there on vacation. We were there for a week, two or three years in a row, and we all learned to juggle from, believe it or not, Hubby Burgess. There's a very famous name in juggling, Hubby Burgess. So you learned to juggle, but did it did it take root at that time, or was it just something you did on those vacations? Took no, it took. It, first of all, it took months to learn how to just do a three ball cascade. Uh, mostly juggling rocks, and then f fruit was not safe in our house. <laughs> and then I'm trying to remember what year. Must have been ninth grade in high school. I did a a, a little juggling act, mostly stuff I had learned from Hovey and the, the FSU jugglers. We called ourselves the throw-ups and, and wore white shirts and red vests. And we juggled tennis balls that we dyed with writ dye. But at that time, there was no desire to make that anything uh, that you did with your living. You were still very immersed in the world of science and herbatology? Oh, yeah. No, there were no role models even. I, did, I didn't know anybody else who could juggle. You ever see jugglers on TV? Any famous jugglers yeah. like that? Yeah, occasionally on Ed Sullivan or any of the variety shows, you'd see these European, real fast club jugglers. 
I, I remember years later when I became a club juggler, thinking back how mystifying it was to watch them and, and, and how incomprehensible their, their acts were. So, so you're in college, you decide to step in out of the rain, you do this play. How does that lead to you then becoming a theater, a person who studies theater and then eventually studying with uh, Jacques Lecoq? Well, the, the next thing that happened is the stage manager of that play uh, was stage manager for a little theater down in the French Quarter. And they were doing a Commedia dell'arte version of Pinocchio as a, a kid show. And the director was Johnny Simons, who was one of the first mimes in America. And Johnny is the founder and director of the Hip Pocket Theater in Fort Worth. And I auditioned for that. And I think partly because I could juggle, I got a part in it. And I was introduced to, to mime and comedia, neither of which I'd really ever heard of. Then uh, my best friend from, from high school came down to visit. We went out and, and did some, some street juggling and hat passing. Now, but just to tell you how rudimentary it was, we were juggling fruit and we had, we had a pair of two-pound solid maple swinging clubs. We didn't even have three clubs. And uh, that, was, that was the beginning. Now, for the people who don't know what Commedia is, could you give us a brief explanation? Commedia dell'arte was the uh, improvisational theater of, uh, that, that, that grew up in Italy in the 16th century. Boy, there are a lot of stories. We just, we just got, my wife wrote up a, a, a chapter in a new book that uh, Routledge just published. It's a, it's a tome on Commedia. It's the, uh, it was mask theater. It had a lot of acrobatics involved in it. And it was the, the foundations of our basic comic stereotypes, Arlecchino and Pantalone, the young lovers, the, the devious servants, the old misers, those, those all come directly from, from Commedia. So if you know Scapino or uh, Servant of Two Masters, those are Commedia plays. So you had this experience studying Commedia, and then at what point do you decide to say, okay, I'm not going to follow the path of science, I'm going to follow the path of theater? Well, that was in my second year, and, and that year, the theater department, which was one of the best departments in the country at the time, all resigned, and I had just become a major, so I sort of quit school, went back to Atlanta, and started auditioning for there was a, a new company starting, a regional theater called uh, the Alliance Theater. And I auditioned and uh, juggled in the audition. And they called me back and asked me to train the, the ballet company. This was a, a, a thing called King Arthur. And it had a ballet company, an opera company, and a theater company. And there was a street theater troupe that the ballet dancers played. And they asked me to train them uh, to juggle, which I which I did. While I was there, they were trying to do some acrobatics. And I had been a gymnast in high school, so I ended up coaching them on that. And eventually they said, well, why don't you, why don't you be in the show? And I was, uh, in a sense, the first Anglo-Saxon. I was, I was on both teams. Hmm. And then it says, uh, uh, looking through your Wikipedia, and it says you worked into the Renaissance Fair circuit. Was that about that time, uh, or did that come a bit later? No, so I, I was there in Atlanta, I went to school at the downtown commuter college. NYU School of the Arts came through town holding auditions. I auditioned there. 
got into that program, went to New York for a year, didn't like New York, went out to California to teach Israeli folk dance at a Hebrew-speaking summer camp, ended up in Seattle where I took too many courses and got a degree in theater. I guess in, uh, well, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, Lecoq came to NYU and I was, since I was in the technical department, I was sort of their liaison, did the lights and things for his lecture demonstration. When I was in Seattle, I wanted to study mime. I'd seen Marceau somewhere along the way. Couldn't find his address in the Paris phone book, but I had Lecoq's address. And at that time, as far as I was concerned, one mime school was as good as another. So I uh, applied, got in, and packed my bags, and, and off I went. Now, was Lecoq a student of Marcel Marceau or, or a contemporary? Well, totally different roots. Uh, contemporary. Marceau was the, the sort of primary student of Etienne de Creux, who was one of the poles of modern mime. And his was a very sort of cubistic approach to movement where, you, where one dissects the movement and there, there are certain decisions that have already been made in that style about what's beautiful and what isn't. So if we, if we can make an analogy to dance, that's classical ballet. And what Lecoq was teaching was jazz improvisation. He was, was heavily influenced by the Commedia dell'arte uh, in Italy the illusion pantomime that Marceau perfected and, and, and spread throughout the world for Lecoq was called the analysis of movement. Yeah, I studied so mime I was, with, a, with a gentleman named Richmond Shepard. Oh, Richmond, a great friend of mine. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was uh, one of my first experiences. There was no juggling schools or anything like that. I didn't want to go to clown school because I didn't want to wear makeup. But then I ended up going to mime school, which was... Uh, yeah. Oh, that's great. But my first job was a mime. Uh, all the mimes got uh, ripped off. None of us got paid. And so it kind of soured my experience on mime. We were <laughs> working in a department store, and they accused one of the mimes of shoplifting, so they decided not to pay any of us, oh. and, which I think was just the way of, of scamming everybody out of their pay. But I always wanted yeah. to juggle. But you always have, have uh, you were always intrigued by working silently? Was there ever a time where you were a speaking act? So when I came back from Paris, so I did a year in Paris, just to bring this up to And, and what is that experience uh, like six, in Paris? I didn't mean to interrupt you, but what is that? Is it like a whole day thing? I mean, what, what is the experience like studying with Lecoq in Paris? Well, first of all, I didn't speak French, so I, I, I probably missed a lot. We had, we had a, an interpreter. Uh, well, we thought he was a translator. Turned out later he was an interpreter. A, a kid from Belgium who was sort of the, what Lacan called le groupe anglo-saxon. So we were the, the people who didn't speak French. No, we, the, the, it was sort of nine to one, I think. I had, a, I had to have a job. And in fact, I worked as a as kind of a general dog's body for an Israeli sculptor hauling stones around. And I learned how to weld and drill holes in rocks and had a, I just had a great time. So anyhow, I did that for a year, came back, I was working as the drama director at a summer camp in North Carolina. Marionette troupe came through, the vagabond marionettes out of Atlanta. And one thing led to another, and I didn't have the money to go back to Paris, so I toured for a year as a, as a puppeteer. And uh, which has come full circle because I spent 
last week repairing puppets for Julie's puppet troupe. She started a puppet troupe, and I'm their chief repair guy. Then I went back to Paris, did the, did the second year, came back, moved to Minneapolis. One of the theater teachers there, this is coming up to answer your question. Oh, sure. No, it's, uh, it's great. Told me Carlo had just started the Delarte School. And uh, I, call, I did about a, a, a three-minute interview, if you could call it that, with Carlo. And he said, yes, come out. Come. Come and work for me. So I packed up my, my van uh, in, in January, left Minneapolis. I had a bottle of water in the front seat of the car with me. It froze solid and stayed frozen until I came down the mountains into Reno. So I spent, uh, I spent that whole spring uh, at Delarte. And the reason is I, would, I, I did a one-man show at uh, the Culture Center in uh, Eureka. And I was working on some verbal stuff. I was working on some silent stuff. And I did the show Friday night speaking and Saturday night silent. Hmm. And uh, the, the next week, Carlo took me aside. He said, you know... When you do your speaking stuff, you're just another guy trying to make us laugh. But when you don't speak, something really magical happens between you and the audience. And that was it. I was wondering if that, if his last name, if I'm saying it right, was Carlo Clemente. Yeah, Carlo Mazzoni Clemente. And that was in Blue Lake, California? Blue Lake, California. My experience with Carlo, because I went up there when I was uh, 17 years old to Blue Lake and I wanted to study there. But I approached him maybe not correctly. I went to the, the workshop and I said, uh, can I watch, can I sort of watch one of the classes? And he said to me, you are like an elephant. I don't know if you're a good elephant or a bad elephant, but to the class you are an elephant and you may scare them. Does that sound oh. like something he would say? <laughs> maybe it was just me. It doesn't particularly sound like Carlo, but it makes a lot of sense. You may have not uh, the accent right, but that was the thought. Yeah. Uh, Car the, the reason I got hired, now this was in, what year was that? Well, let's see. That was probably late 70s, 78, 79, around there. So I had just left. I think I was there 75, 76, somewhere in there. The reason, there weren't a lot of Lecoq graduates. It was quite mysterious. And Carlo had worked with Lecoq. Carlo was kind of the center person in mind at that period. He had been a student of Decreux. He had worked with Marceau. And Decreux hated Marceau because he felt like he popularized what for him, Decreux, was a, was a, uh, a sacred art form. And he had worked with Lecoq. So he was really the central person. In fact, he introduced Faye and Jacques Lecoq to each other at a party uh, in New York. So there's a wonderful story that uh, Marceau had come to New York and was the toast of the town. He played it at city center he was on Johnny Carson. He was all over the newspapers. He was he was heralded as a as a kind of eighth wonder of the world. Uh, I don't know if you remember when he first showed up. People just couldn't believe it was a magic. It was like watching David Copperfield the first time. People were just astounded. Then DeCrew came, and he was working in a basement at one of the colleges. And I'm not 
sure. I don't think it was NYU. I think it must have been City College. I'm not sure. But this is a story that Carlo told that DeCrew was, was teaching and he had just a few students uh, down in this basement. And so Carlo went to him. He was, said, Monsieur Marceau would really like to, you, to invite you to his show and to get together with you. And, and he says to DeCrew, now, do you know who DeCrew is? I know the name. Look at the Children of Paradise. There's a scene, the, the, the old man leader of the, of the troop in Children of Paradise is DeCrew. You can actually see him. So it said that DeCrew stood up and at his full height said, Marceau travaille dans les palais. Il pense qu'il est le pape. Moi, je travaille dans les catacombes. Je suis Jésus-Christ. And translated means Marceau, he works in the palaces. He thinks he's the pope. I toil in the catacombs. I am Jesus Christ. Well, at least so, he uh, didn't think too highly of himself. That's a great, great story. Mm. But to answer your question about uh, the elephant, something that I think almost every acting teacher will tell you is that the, the, the main job that you have to do is to create uh, an atmosphere and a place where students feel safe to be bad. That's that's the take I got it. That I was a stranger. That he didn't know well, if I was a good stranger or a bad stranger, but that I was a stranger, and that the other people wouldn't feel safe around me. Exactly. I often often people come to the barn or at other workshops and ask if they can watch, and I say, well, it really wouldn't be right for the students. So, you're an elephant. What can I say? Well, I was just coming from a very vulnerable place at the time, and I could have used yeah. somebody to recognize that I had any worth. The only bad experience I had with him was then I was in front of the library uh, later on juggling. And I thought, well, okay, yeah. once he sees me juggling, he'll be interested and at least stop and talk to me. And he looked at me juggling and just as if I didn't register at all. So I, I never oh. felt too strongly about Carlo. So that was my experience with him. Carlo was great. He, he, he was the, the master of the aphorism. He, he, said, he said, remember, the ground is your best friend. It's the only one that tells you which way is up. And my favorite one of his is the inventors of the alphabet were illiterate. And he was big on the, the notion of impro improvisation, the moment of improviso. He said, uh, it's not important what you know. It's what you don't know and find out. So I got to, to use a great line. I was at the uh, Festival of American Mime in, in uh, Milwaukee, and I did a show. It was the first time Carlo and Lecoq had been together in years. After my show, I said, I want to I dedicate this, this show to my two teachers who haven't seen each other in years, to Lecoq, who taught me everything I know, and Carlo, who taught me the rest. Mm. And years later, at Lecoq's memorial, Carlo, he was, he was hobbling around on canes. I hadn't seen him in years. He came hobbling over. He said, what do you mean? You said I didn't teach you nothing? <laughs> I said, no, 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 Carlo, no, no. I explained it. And we had a good laugh. So you were with these fantastic teachers. I never studied with Carlo. I, I was teaching at the school, but I, I took advantage and sat in on every class of his. And then spent a fair amount of my classes, in, in a sense, interpreting, explaining Carlo to the students. 
So with his input, you decided at that point to become a silent performer, and did you... That so encounter with Carlo where I did one show talking, one show silent, I decided to, to stay silent. I also realized that I could travel all over the world with that. So anyhow, that's how I got to be uh, silent. And then when you were performing at the Renaissance Fairs, were you silent there? Yep. Yeah. I, uh, my background was theater more than skill stuff. So I, I thought a lot about how to present the skills. And in my workshop, I talk a lot about skill performers. And I think most skill performers, and particularly magicians, uh, jugglers, acrobats, contortionists, I can do this and you can't, therefore you should watch me. Mm. And I, nobody wants to spend time with a person like that. So I developed a, a, a lot of theoretical work, but, but, but it was abstracted from the practical work where, where one tries to find a way for the, the uh, skill to have a different attitude than that. So my, the basic structure of my show was tying up a slack rope and walking it. But if I did that at the beginning of the show, I, I would attract a huge crowd, but I had nothing to follow. So I found all kinds of digressions. I would notice things in the crowd and, and pop off and do those. And I became known as the guy with the five-minute rope walking act who will do anything to avoid doing it. Interesting. I, I just taught at the Clown Conservatory here in San Francisco. Are they open again? Yes. Uh, Joe Diffenbacher is the... Um... Is, oh. has the head role there uh, at the Clown oh, Conservatory. At the uh, Circus Center? Yes, at the Circus Center in San Francisco. I think Joe was at Del Arte. I'm pretty sure that's where I met him. Yeah, I, I, don't, I didn't have any experience with him as a teacher, but it seemed to me that the students, they weren't interested in being skill-based clowns, that they didn't really feel the need to develop their, their base skills that even having sort of skills was sort of taking them away from organic clowning. I didn't get that at all. I didn't understand where they're... One guy goes, I don't do skills. Okay. I, I didn't understand. <laughs> I'm like, because my favorite clowns, I, I refer to you as a skill-based clown. Yeah. And they were like, well, Avdra's not a skill-based clown. I'm like, well, he's a fantastic magician and juggler and wire walker. How can, you, how can people say that? It's a very interesting... New, new technique. that they're, they're more like agents of chaos. There's a, a fellow in New York, I think his name is Matthew Silver. Are you aware of his work? No. He's more like, I don't want to say a crazy homeless person, but it's just more like sort of a Dada-esque approach of making noises and just sort of acting silly. Oh. With, with no like regard for actual content. It's just more like, can't we act silly? Can't we be crazy? And... Some of the performers in the circus thought, well, that's what I want to do. I want to be like an agent of chaos and just be able to not be separated by my skills and just interact yeah. with people. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to each their own, to each their own. Now, uh, who were some of your contemporaries in the Renaissance Fair? And is that where you went after you left Del Arte? Yeah, what happened is uh, I left Del Arte because I had a, I had a residency uh, come to think about the University of Louisville, and it was through the Louisville Youth Theater, but they got me a gig teaching mime at the Expressive Therapies Institute, which was a, a graduate program in expressive therapies, but mostly art therapy. 
And uh, I also taught in the theater department and then taught for this the theater. So I was there for about three months. And one thing led to another. I went back to Minnesota where I was living and started doing outdoor festivals. And that was my first gig was the, the uh, Minnesota Renaissance Fair. And then uh, uh, got picked up by the Texas Fair. And, you know, just it just kind of turns into a snowball that rolls. But uh, that's where I met the Flying Karamazov brothers. We were, were there for the first time together. Penn and Teller uh, were there with me. Magical, mystical Michael, Michael Kaufman, mm -hmm. uh, Puke and Snot, Danny Lord. I'm sure some other names will come up. How about Fudd, the Incredible Juggler? Fudd? Fudd, F-U-D. Uh, I missed him. There was mm -hmm. a rat catcher. Oh, the rat catcher. Yeah, we were yeah, at the fair probably a few years after you, me and Barry. Yeah. Because and th that was sort of the beginning of what they called New Vaudeville that whole time. Well, that, I had a part in that. I don't know if you know the story. I don't. Well, Bill Irwin was first. Mm -hmm. And he showed up at, with his show in regard of flight. And then the Karamazov showed up on Broadway with their show. In the meantime... We did Comedy of Errors, which is on YouTube, the uh, original version with all the juggling and acrobatics restored. And Mel Gussow did a preview piece on the Flying Karamazov Brothers. He flew to Chicago and watched Comedy of Errors, and he, he wrote me a little love letter in their preview. And based on that, I, I was actually on my way to Europe. I'd gotten pretty discouraged with trying to be a clown juggler mime in America. And I, there was the first New York Clown Theater Festival in a 99-seat theater in the Jewelry District. And he came and reviewed my show. And the next day, I had to hire a lawyer to deal with the, with the producers who wanted to do my show on Broadway. And then I think it was a year or two later, uh, Penn and Teller showed up off-Broadway. And Mel Gussow coined the term New Vaudeville around the those these four groups uh bill Irwin, karamazov penn and teller and myself because we were doing what were traditional vaudeville skills but doing full evening shows you met the karamazov brothers at the renaissance fair and at what point did you team up with them to do this comedy of errors was that fairly quickly or did that take a long process to develop no actually we did uh the the real founding father of new vaudeville is a man named Dudley Riggs who had something called ETC experimental theater company uh, uh, in, uh, in Minneapolis. And while we were at the fair first, uh, the Karamazovs and I did a split evening show and then they came back and did their show alone. I came back and did my show with a musical opener and Penn and Teller came and did their show when they were Asparagus Valley. So that was where, even though we told people we did theater shows, we didn't really do very many of them. And that's where we could, we did four shows, four, four to six shows a day at the fair, and then raced down to Dudley's and did two shows through the weekend. We had six-week runs there, which was, was fantastic. So the, the Karamazovs and I did that. We did various other shows. And then we were booked into the main stage at the Goodman Theater for a combined show called Welcome to Our Living Room. Mm. While we were there, the artistic director uh, called us into his office and said, we, we have to do a classic next year. The board wants us to do a classic. 
uh, Shakespeare or Greek tragedy or something. And we want to do comedy of errors and we want to feature the five of you. And we said, huh, what are you talking about? I said, well, there's this line about jugglers and mountebanks. We'll make it work. Don't worry. Hmm. We booked, we hired every vaudevillian in the country to be in it. And uh, it's on YouTube. You can see it. I think what Jeff Raz and, and Vaudeville Nouveau is in that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, Danny and, and uh, uh, what's, uh, oh, his name is escaping me. There were Anyhow, yeah. before my time, I, I know Jeff quite well, but the others I, I never quite met. Yeah. But that is a great uh, performance, and we'll put a link to that uh, in the YouTube version of our podcast. Because yeah. that was a very What's important that? production that, like you say, brought all these great vaudevillian performers together and really oh, it was, it was very visible at the time. Yeah, and then it was broadcast live, live from Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. that, that, was a, boy, that was a trip. Now, that was the original, the original four Karamazov brothers, or were there more at that time? There were actually uh, one replacement. Sam Williams was already there, and Randy was gone. And Randy came back. I was originally supposed to do the part that Randy played, which was a, a speaking role. And so I invented the role that I played, which was the janitor of the theater who got trapped in the production. Uh, and then I also played the little, uh, I played Dr. Pinch as a dwarf. Okay. Or a humanette, actually. And how long did that show last on Broadway? I'm thinking three months, three, four months. And we, it closed because we did the broadcast. They didn't, it wouldn't run after the broadcast. But we did, well, first we did it in Chicago. We did it at the Goodman Theater. Mm -hmm. Then we did it at Lincoln Center. And then a couple of years later, we were America's entry in, in the Olympics Arts Festival, which must have been 84. So you, at the same time, you were doing your own show or that, that sort of took its My place? My show was about 84, 85. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I closed it to go do Jewel of the Nile. I was, I was cast in Jewel of the Nile. So how did that come about? Did they see you in the play? Well, or did you audition for it? How did that role come well, about? Karamazovs were already cast as the juggling Sufis. I'm not really sure how my name came up, but we had the same sort of manager attorney, a wonderful guy named Tim DeBates. Tim called me one day and said, Michael Douglas uh, wants to talk to you. I had drinks with Michael and, and Louis Teague, who was the uh, director. And uh, I did a, a very brief sort of camera screen test. And uh, they said, okay, you wanna, do you want to do it? I tried to talk them out of it. Be because you didn't think you were ready or didn't think you would be able to pull it off? Why would you try to talk them out of it? Well, it's a, a heavy-duty speaking role with a dialect. I said, I, I don't even speak. Uh, I've found out since that that's a great way to get parts. <laughs> because it shows that your, your, your ego isn't too big to take direction? Why? <clears throat> I'll have to try that. No. You explain to them why you, you can't do it. And they explain to you why you can. They had, Michael and Lewis had, had come and seen my show, unbeknownst to me. And I, I really owe them a huge debt. They, they saw something in me that I never would have imagined was there. So I did months of uh, dialect coaching to learn uh, the dialect for the part. And I went off uh, a couple of weeks early would go out into the marketplace. My, my costume was actually pretty contemporary 
Moroccan clothing and I had a, a, a guide driver. And Rashid and I would go off into the market. When people started talking to me in Arabic, I knew I was passing. Mm. So I, it was very important to me to find the, the right body language for the character. Now, that must have been a very interesting experience. Any um, oh. stories from the set that, that stand out in your memory? Put you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> you really find out about the quality and quantity of waiting. There, there's a scene where uh, we're, we're climbing a mountain. Those were actually real mountain climbers. We were, we were only about 10 feet off the ground. And a, a rock that we kicked falls down and hits the, the tank. And the director uh, decided that he had to throw the rock. So we were all looking at the tank, and all of a sudden the director dropped into frame. He, th he threw himself off the mountain. My favorite, my favorite one was when we're when we're up on the side of the mountain, uh, and they're they're shooting at us. And he he shoots a uh, a rocket that hits the the mountain right below us, and it uh, causes an avalanche uh, uh, that that buries the tanks. So we had this scene that you do you know what squibs are? They're ex explosions. Yeah, little, they're little firecrackers, basically. So to make a machine gun, you put a whole bunch of them, not to make the gun, to make the effects of a machine gun. So they had them in the wall of this little cave we were in, a whole line of them behind us. So we had to be very careful. We couldn't move. And then they have a board with nails in it and an ice pick with a wire coming out, and they go, and each time it touches a nail, it, it fires off another one of these little squibs, and it looks just like a machine gun going. Well, the first time they did those, we, we were running, and the, one of them went off right under my foot. They said I looked like a, somebody in a Roadrunner cartoon. They said I jumped up in the air about three feet. My feet started moving before I hit the ground, and I was gone. I, ran, I outran the whole thing. So we had to come back and do it again. This took half a day to set up. Because they had to get this cave right, get all the squibs in. They had a guy shooting gelatin bullets between our heads uh, while we're we're in there. Uh, there was one funny. There was a funny line when we're doing the scene, and uh, Michael says, "I don't I don't want to die on this mountainside." And I said, "It is not my oh I know I said it is not my destiny to die in this mountainside." And uh, Michael said, what about us? I said, oh, that's another game of baseball. <laughs> Anyhow, they, the, the whole thing went off. There were probably 50 explosions, all these bullets, people throwing dirt down. The dust clears. The director yells, cut, looks at the camera, and they're not even running the camera. They're standing there with their hands on their hips. And Lewis turned to the cameraman and said, what's the matter? He said, you forgot to say action. Uh. <laughs> so we went to lunch they spent the rest of the day setting it up again so when the movie comes out and uh, your reviews are quite strong and you're very well received did that encourage you to try to do more movie work or did you use that as a springboard to do your your own show both i did a couple of other little things not nothing much happened you really have to live in la but i, I had an agent i went out to la for pilot season i auditioned for movies and, and TV shows, and uh, I only got one other, well, I got two features. I was in a thing called Brenda Starr, which didn't do much, and I was actually played Woody Allen's brother-in-law in Crimes and Misdemeanors, but my whole carrot, my whole story got cut out, mm -hmm. even though we shot and reshot. There's a funny story there. That was exactly 26 years ago, because Zeb was about three months old. He, 
he met Woody Allen. Mm. So I play this character uh, who is his brother-in-law, and I tried to kill myself. I had a great line. I'm in, lying in bed with tubes up my nose, and Woody says, how is it? I said, boy, you know, I feel more alive now that I'm dying than I ever did when I was alive trying to kill myself. Uh, it's a great line. Uh, so two, two funny things happened. One, it was a, a flashback of my life. We're out uh, a very cold morning on the steps of one of the city universities, and I'm making an anti-war speech. So I had, had memorized the speech. I felt very paranoid. Here I was, this skinny little actor, and there were all these massive kind of uh, Black Panther actors who were part of the this whole anti-war thing, and I was the one, and I was sure they were going, ah, who is this guy? Anyhow, I did the speech. There was a big crowd there, so it was easy to, to do. Actually, the guy, it was really neat because the other actors were really supportive. I made the speech, then Woody comes over and says, we're having some trouble with the camera move. I need you to just stretch it, just improvise something. Right. That wasn't what I wanted to hear. <laughs> but I, <laughs> was he intimidating? Then, was Woody Allen? <clears throat> excuse me. No. Was he? Was he an intimidating presence? I mean, uh, I think I'd be intimidated no. by him. No, he was fantastic. He was great. I'm lying in bed with tubes up my nose, doing this scene with Woody. I get a call on Sunday. What are you doing tomorrow? I said nothing. Why? They said, Well, we need you to come back to reshoot a scene, and I assumed it was the uh, my big speech scene. And I got there and I, I went into makeup and they started putting on makeup that was it was called Frankenstein Gray. And they put green lines inside my eyelids mm. and made my eyes red. And and I said, what, what scene are we doing? They said, oh, it's the hospital scene. So I get in bed, tubes back up my nose. Woody says, you know why we're reshooting this scene? I said, no, nah, I assumed I screwed it up. He said, no, no, no. We, we got the dailies back and showed it to people. You look healthier than I did. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, look at your career, though. So you, you're the star of a major motion picture. You've appeared on Broadway. You get to work with Woody Allen. And then yeah. you get to travel the world with your own silent show. Now, I never anticipate you or, or see you as a circus performer. Were you always a no. theatrical clown, or do you also make some appearances in, in, in traditional circus? No, I never worked in a circus. I did the Monte Carlo Circus Festival, and that, boy, that was, whew, that was Art. something. Yeah. <laughs> Different. Well, let's mean, put it this way. It, as you know, circus is really skill-based. I was balancing a 10-foot a, a stepladder on my chin, which I had cut apart and fitted into a case so I could bring it over there. What I didn't know was the act before me was a, a guy who balanced a 30-foot pole on his shoulder while his brother climbed it and did one-arm handstands on top of it. Mm. My piddly little ladder thing just got lost. But it was interesting because I did a kind of a status analysis. And I realized that I was kind of coming out high status, a little macho. I can do this. And uh, there was a juggler who would go, hup, and a guy in a tuxedo would throw his props out of the spotlight and just appear magically. So I, I changed things. I First of all, I, I came marching out. The, the band played very loud, and I couldn't, I couldn't hear what was going on. I came marching out and then stopped and looked at the prints and all the 
royal people and kind of shrugged as if to say, this is a prince? This is, this is, this is a circus? You guys relax. I'm going to have a cigarette. And I did, you know, my cigarette dropping yeah. routine. So I did my cigarette dropping routine, which went very well. And I went, all right. I put the broom away and I went, hup. And I, <laughs> I took, heaved a roll of toilet paper at me and I had to, I had to hit the ground. And it was this feeling of, why, 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 why me? Mm. So I went totally low status. And then I balanced a big piece of toilet paper. There's a way to fold it, crease it so that you can balance it. And, uh, and then I did my slack rope routine, which was, which was fine because it's, it's, it's on YouTube, by the way. I'm very happy I found a, a tape of it. And I ended up winning a prize. Now, do you think there's a difference between uh, the circus clown and the theatrical clown? Is it just the setting or is there a particular uh, attack that maybe uh, a circus clown would take different than a clown that works in the theater? I don't know. I don't really know. I've never really worked in the circus. I know Rob Torres is, is having a great time working in, in the circus in France. And his is very character-based. Right. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know. Now, you've had the opportunity to travel all over the world with your silent show. Do different uh, cultures react differently to your performance? And, and can you give us an example of, of some of those differences? The first time I played in Japan, I was doing my napkin eating, and it, it really wasn't getting much of a reaction. And I talked to Japanese friends, and they, they finally, and they're so polite, and they said, well, it's kind of disgusting, really. <laughs> right. So I got a nabe, which is a Japanese soup bowl, and it became the story of, an, of a foreigner trying to eat Japanese food. So I started using chopsticks. And I would pull out a piece of napkin, but it was like looking at like this, you guys eat raw fish? What is this? And then it became much more interesting. Uh, the idea of taking volunteers on stage, uh, you have to be very, very circumspect and polite. You can't, you can't just... And, and, and now I teach this as a as a way to bring people on stage. Uh, I remember one of our students said, so is it okay to piss the audience off? I said, remember, their, their enjoyment is your employment. Yeah, I know you have very uh, strong feelings about volunteers. For many years, we've done that stunt where the volunteer stands in the middle and we throw knives around him while we spin balls on sticks and, and revolve the hoops on our ankles. I know that's been sort of not of a bone of contention between us, but I've always known that's not a thing that you really approve of. Is that because the volunteer is treated more as a prop or what's your feelings I on that? The, I think that the only thing that adds to the juggling virtuosity is that a volunteer from the audience might get hurt. Mm. I know that they won't. I right. know that right. even if you screw up, they're not going to get hurt. But the perception is that they might. That's why they're there. Right. You're putting them in danger. I can't watch that anymore. Mm. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. I mean, it's, it's uh, even, I've never really liked doing it. It wasn't a moment that I really felt. I've always had my partner throw in front of the volunteer, like throw in front yeah. of their face. It just seems, I mean, not as a cop out, but it's a, we tried to do it a bit different than other jugglers had done it. And yeah. try to treat the volunteer with respect. But yeah, basically they're a prop to just uh, make the trick look a little more impressive. So my, my 
take on volunteers is that other people in the audience should say, that really looked like fun. Maybe I can go next. Mm. And I don't think anybody sees that trick and goes, hey, can I do that? <laughs> right, right, right. That looks like fun. It's not the thing going through their mind. The Karamazovs had a funny variation after Jewel of the Nile. They, they juggled hatchets around a guy. They put this big protective overcoat on him. And then it was over. That this thing was all full of solenoids and, and, uh, and water. And water would come out of a hundred different holes. Oh, that's funny. Now, when you watch juggling acts, what do you feel might be lacking in some of the acts you see? Is there something that we could look at from sort of the theatrical element that you've uh, been studying your whole life and, and improve our, like, let's say, let me put this differently. When you work with a juggler in one of your workshops, what are things you can bring to their performance to help them be more successful? Well, to, to go back to something we talked about earlier in terms of skills, you, could, you, you have to go out and learn your skills, hone them and perfect them 10 years before you want to put them on stage. It's not, it's not that you go to clown school and then start learning a skill. You, you have to come in a juggler, magician, contortionist, and then find a way to present it. And I think basic attitudes along the lines of the, the best one is when the skill is the solution to a problem. So I look at, I look at a skill and go, okay, that's the solution. I wonder what the problem was. Mm. I'll give you a very good example. And I've, I've did this with, uh, one of our students who was a superb diabolist. He could, he could, he was jaw droppingly good. And he got the Diablo string between his legs and then did all of the amazing tricks he could do, but at the end of each sequence of tricks, it was still between his legs. And his whole problem was to get the string out from between his legs. And when he finally did, the audience cheered. So he was, he was trying to, to solve a problem. So sort of adding a premise. So like most juggling acts, there's really no reason they're doing it. It's like you're saying, watch me do this skill. Fine. That's, that's the hard one. But when you find it, it's golden. Interesting. Because uh, as, as I approach my work, uh, like I was telling you, I want to work more silently. This idea yeah. of bringing some kind of humanity and some kind of humor, especially silently, is sort of a very important thing for me to try to discover how to do that. Yeah. Uh, the, the spinning plate act is the perfect example. You've got a problem to solve. You've got to get all the plates right. up. Have you ever seen Danny Ronaldo's version? No, I don't, I don't believe so. Danny Ronaldo? Oh, God, one of the best, best clowns in the world. Look up uh, Cucina, I think it's C-U-C-I-N-A, like Italian kitchen, Cucina mm -hmm. dell'arte. Okay. Uh, he and his brother own a pizza parlor, and, and it's hilarious, and he does a plate spinning act. Okay, so the next, the next attitude that I found that really works for skill stuff is I found this really neat thing. Can I show it to you? I see. So it's a sense of sharing then, like sharing with real, excitement. Hmm. Show you this. I'm excited about it. I want to show it to you. And that, I find, is, 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 is really nice, that there's, there's a sense of, of excitement about doing it. Well, you're, you're really, your reputation as a teacher is excellent. So it's, um, it's, it's amazing the work you've done with people to sort of bring these other elements to their skills. Like I know you, you work with Iman. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't, I've always forgotten how to pronounce her last name. Lazaruzu? 
Lisa Razu. Lisa Razu. Probably one of the best, yeah, uh, the best names we're ever. Gonna the, we're going to be at the festival in Milano. She won the first prize. Yeah, well, I was just in Santa Cruz. She's one of the, the renegade uh, juggler yeah. crew. Yeah, she's come, she's come so far. And a lot of that yeah. is, uh, I would credit to your tutelage. And well, Julie really directed her show. I've just consulted on it. But she came to us as a friend and a six-ring juggler and said, I want to be a clown. Can I do it this summer? And I said, no, you better count on five years. That's what I, I think is a kind of a, a basic time span. Sure enough, about four years later, she had a show and was starting to win prizes with it. Now, you're saying five years because that's how long it takes you to find your character or your identity as a clown? Well, it's more than that. It's, it's and find the show. Mm. What do you... What, What's the, what story are you telling, Certainly. and and why why are you telling it? Now you've had some varied experiences outside of clowning and juggling. I'd like to ask you how these these different experiences inform your teaching. Now it says you're a certified Ericksonian hypnotist. Could you yes. tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'll be happy to. I have been studying Milton Erickson, and if anyone's interested, the the book this was one of those life changing books. Not in a self-help sense, but in terms of understanding that there's there's a whole field of study out there that's that's fascinating and applicable. It's called Uncommon Therapy by Jay Haley, H-A-L-E-Y. It's about the the uh, hypnotic psychotherapeutic techniques of Milton Erickson. It's totally accessible, and I I had read that and taken a workshop, a weekend workshop in Ericksonian hypnosis. Uh, for two reasons, I got very interested in it because number one, when theater really works, it's very much a trance-like experience. It has all the hallmarks of trance: body uh, loss of body awareness, time distortion, trips into into fantastic world, hallucinations. I think the basic contract between the audience and the performers is to share the same hallucination. Hmm. There's a there's a third reality in the room. There's the one that you have as a performer. There's the reality that the audience has. And then there's the, the reality that you agree to share. Wow, something weird's going I'm looking out at the ocean. There's something really thrashing around out there. Huh. You have a view of the I'm ocean from your house? That's that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Especially appreciated on a day like today. Yeah, if you walk 50 yards out the house, you have to swim back. <laughs> I'm going to come visit one of these days, for sure. Oh, I, hope, I hope you do. So one thing, I, I knew that uh, hypnosis, and particularly Ericksonian hypnosis, which is different from what we'll call traditional hypnosis, is that it's conversational. It's not dependent on stare into my eyes, look at this watch, look at that dot. It can be done conversationally, and, and obviously theater hypnosis is done conversationally. I wanted to find out about trance. I just want, So I took a weekend workshop. Mm. And the other thing is that I, I've discovered that almost every student I've worked with and most performers have some level of anxiety about performing, some level of stage fright. Mm. And I know that hypnosis is probably the best modality for working with stage fright. So I wanted to learn about that with, with, with the kind of fantasy that, well, I might be able to help people. 
And I got absolutely hooked on it. I had had shoulder surgery. I had six months off. So I made, I think, a total of eight or ten trips down to Washington, D.C. to do the training and then the advanced training. Uh, and then I got certified as an Ericksonian hypnotist, an NLP master practitioner, and then as an instructor of both those. So I teach, I teach uh, seminars in, in, in those. I mean, certainly for arts. jugglers, the ability to control stage fright is so important because the, Absolutely. the, the small movements we make. I always say that just because you're nervous doesn't mean you have to act nervous. <laughs> that seems to help me backstage. That people sure. reinforce their nervousness by pacing or by wringing their hands or just acting very, very tense. It makes the people around them tense. So I always just say, just pretend that you're, you're, you're not nervous. Don't act nervous. Sure. And it helps sure. to make you not nervous. That works. Yeah. And, and my career was, uh, I, I thought I might be heading toward retirement. And I thought, well, it'd be nice to have something I can do sitting down. Unfortunately or unfortunately, things have really taken off, mostly in Europe and South America. So that's where most of my work is. But I have a very nice practice here in, in Portland. I work a lot with actors and performers uh, who have anxiety issues. And it has informed a lot how to create an experience for a volunteer that's pleasant. So let's, we're almost towards the end of our time together. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of your favorite jugglers. Are there any jugglers that you've met in your career who stand out as, as sort of examples of what you consider to be a great juggling act? Well, you, of course. Well, all right. I will accept that. I appreciate that. Uh, did you ever uh, get to, to work with uh, Francis Brunn or someone like that? I, I met Francis. I saw him perform. I loved him. Uh, Booba is a real favorite of mine. Yes, I'm a big Booba fan. We'll also put a link to him. Sort of an unknown juggler, but great character, Booba, and great skills. Wonderful. I've been looking at people doing things with hula hoops lately, and I'm mightily impressed. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I don't have any names. There was a woman, I think Cindy Marvel, oh, she's amazing. Uh, she posted it. I couldn't tell from the video if it's her, but it's working with three hoops. Very much in a a very eerie way. It's kind of like, you know, contact juggling where it looks like the ball is staying still and the person is moving all underneath it. Yeah. They call it hoop uh, isolations. This, yeah. It's just phenomenal. And there's a, there's a, there's some, some little pretty obscure juggling things like that. Uh, I love what Iman is doing. I don't get to see that many jugglers. Mm. Uh, Paul Bachman. Of course, Mr. B. A real, who's the guy that, first did the hoops over his, you know, like Carter does. Well, I think you're thinking Bob Bromson. Yeah. He wasn't the first, like Howard Nichols. There was, there was ones earlier, but Bob Bromson oh, was there's... the one that came to the uh, convention in Rapid City and okay. performed for the IJA. He had a very long oh, career. He started with his oh, family. Much older than that. Well, there was Howard Nichols, who was back like 1910, 1920. And there was also Everhart, who was even before That's Howard right. Nichols. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of styles of juggling that have sort of not sort of lasted the test of time. And hoop rolling, even though now with some of the hula hoop work, it's bringing back a little bit. And also some of the large ring work uh, is sort of bringing back the rolls on the body type of work. Yeah, I've seen some amazing stuff in Finland where they're very 
very theatrical. They're they're not there to juggle, but juggling is what happens while they're moving around. I, I can't even explain it, but I've seen some remarkable Finnish juggling acts. I, I wish I had names. I just I just don't know. Uh, Joyce Rice is a big favorite. Yeah, Do you know Joyce. Joyce? Sure, hip uh, whips and uh, batons. Oh. Well, yeah, lovely. Person. Yeah. Well, well, the Karamazovs and I were performing at Dudley Ridge in Minneapolis, which was at least 20 below. We had heard there was a foot juggler at the uh, auto show in St. Paul. We, we, we drove over there, parked a half a mile away, shivered our ways up to the door, and they said, no, he's not here. We have the baton twirling champion. And we went, oh, God, well, at least it's warm. And we went in and... Needless to say, our jaws dropped, and she became a, a lifelong friend. But that boy, that was a that was a fun thing to be that taken that much off guard and surprised. Well, I think the thing you're you're sort of looking at, and I do as well, is the people like Booba or Joyce Rice. There's a certain presence, a certain joy with what they present, and I think if juggling is to move forward in, in our in our modern time. People need to sort of look at what you're doing, look at the performance elements, and bring a deeper meaning to what they're presenting. Mm -hmm. And one thing, one way they can do that, of course, is studying with you. Now, every every summer, you lead workshops at the Celebration Barn. Uh, can well, you tell us a little bit about that and, and how people could find out about that? Yeah, it's called Celebration Barn. It's in South Paris, Maine. It's there are about eight weeks of intensive workshops. Everyone comes and lives with us. We don't run the place. We've just been teaching there for, I think, 22 years now. We being Julie Goel, my wife and I. Our work, we are, it's now it's two one-week workshops, but that's to give people a chance to escape, really. We had nine different nationalities last year. People come and, and we all live together at the barn. We have a chef, so all meals are are provided. We have two classes a day and then presentations in the evening. And it's a, a, it's really a marvelous experience. Yeah, I got to get out there one time. That's one on my bucket list for things to do. I've only heard great things about the experience, and of course, I've only heard great things about you as a teacher. And luckily, I was enough. I was lucky enough to sort of sit in on a couple of your workshops. You oh, didn't think right. you didn't think I was an elephant. You were <laughs> you were a little bit more open to me watching, and I've always been appreciative of that. Uh, we've covered a lot of great information, and we'll be able to. Um, uh, edit it down a bit and include uh, all your wonderful teachings and experiences. And is there anything, any like final words of wisdom you want to impart to the jugglers who might be listening to this podcast? If you can't succeed every time, learn to fail magnificently. With those words of wisdom, thank you so much to my good friend and master clown and teacher, Avner Eisenberg, better known as Avner the Eccentric. I hope you enjoyed podcast number 11, Drop Everything with Avner Eisenberg. If you're interested in his eccentric performing workshops, check out celebrationbarn.com. If you're interested in learning more about juggling and how to become part of the world's greatest juggling organization, check out the IJA, the International Jugglers Association, at juggle.org. Thanks once again to my engineer, Karen Holzman. My name is Dan Holzman, wishing you all a good day and drop everything except when you're juggling.